0: Check out idealwine.com for more information. That's I D E A L W I N E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Phil Saray on the show of Jenny and Francois Selections. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Nice to have you here. Happy to be here. So you told me once that you learned about wine from drinking a lot of bad wine. How did that uh, (laughs) that all start?
1: Well, it wasn't too much bad wine. It was a short period. Uh, Basically, after college, I went to France and uh, got to use my grandmother's apartment. And uh, we decided to live French a little bit and cook some meals. And there was some of this wine left over and it was uh, really pretty basic stuff. And what, what was Paris like at that time? Um, you know, it was uh, it was a lot of culture and it was a lot of fun to just go around all day and do cultural stuff and then pick up uh, food and kind of live the French life and have some cheese after the meal and have some of this uh, grandma wine.
0: It, had that been something that had you'd had some experience with in the States or no? Was it more like the supermarket experience?
1: Um, well, my parents are French and my mom was a pretty good cook. Um, but they liked the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> that was something, you know, my dad did the shopping once a week. and But we'd go in summer to France and then uh, we'd find that uh, there you 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 buy from more small stores and, and you have cheese after your meal and all that kind of stuff. And did you start traveling around a little bit? Um, my aunt had an apartment in Avignon, so I took a, a trip with my girlfriend there. And that's where we finally had a meal where we were served some young Shatunovdi pops, and and um, it was really a gr- first of all a great restaurant, and then the wine was really fresh, and compared to the stuff that we were drinking in Paris apartment, it was amazing.
0: And at the time, the the Rhone
1: wasn't so well known. No, as far as wine, you
0: mean? Well, I mean just uh, wine in this country. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like yeah. It, for was, it was new. It was new, but it was co- it's very new to me.
0: So what? What era? This is like the eighty.
1: This is nineteen eighty seven, yeah. and and so you come back to New York, right? Came back to New York, uh, didn't have a job, so I I lived at home, and uh, decided uh, the wine thing was kind of neat. There was this wine shop that I could walk to uh, called Zaki's. I've heard of that place. Yeah, small wine store in Scarsdale, and uh, I was able to walk there, and uh, so I got a job and started working there.
0: And and what was that experience
1: like? Um, it was great because, uh, there, you know, I, uh, started really getting into wine and, uh, and, and reading about it and, um, bringing home bottles in the evening. And, and, uh, because I was living at my parents' house, I had a little bit of a budget for, for drinking some wine. And it was great.
0: And what were you reading back then? I mean, what was the normal?
1: Well, the, the first book I grabbed was the, was a new book from Robert Parker called The Wines of the Rhone Valley in Provence. And, uh, that was the book that i that sort of you know opened my eyes to you know this way of talking about wine and he sort of laid it out and classified it in a way that made sense and was neat you know
0: and you were drawn to the, those rhone wines at the time exactly
1: exactly i really wanted to try what he was describing and and you know and i had had the Du pops so experience and and so i wanted to try what he was describing it was really getting me excited about it
0: and you said one time you you traded somebody a bottle uh for some for some gigandah and some chateauneuf actually
1: well my parents um my parents drank wine my mother drank wine with meals but it wasn't anything great you know she back then there was a lot more jug wine and and uh she i think she was drinking the almadin and and stuff like that that's so, what my dad did yeah yeah <laughs> So, but there was this one bottle in, in the cellar that was a gift, I guess. It was a 1964 Chateau Latour uh, first growth, you know. And I guess I, I, I found the bottle and, and and brought it to my parents and said, you know, um, maybe I could trade this for a few more bottles, you know. And uh, so, I brought it to uh, Don Zachariah. was she to?
0: like? Make sure you get the El <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
1: Make sure you get something good for your <laughs> mind. Um I don't know how it came to, to them, the, that bottle, but... Um,
0: Chateau Latour, I mean, pretty famous. Chateau Latour,
1: very famous. Had some age, Very expensive, had some age. And uh, I asked uh, Don Zachariah, the owner of Zachy's, if uh, he'd be willing to trade it for like, you know, five bottles of Chateau du Pop, And he sort of grabbed the bottle and then said, sure, you know, Uh, he seemed like it was a pretty good deal to him. And so that, you know, I felt less guilty about opening five good, really good bottles of wine than um, this one really expensive wine.
0: And what were you drinking Net exchange? Well,
1: <clears throat> I had done my research, so I grabbed, a, um, I a pretty good memory for wine, so I, I grabbed three bottles of Bocastel. 81, two of those, and an 83, and uh, uh, Gigondas, Le Pellier. Oh, okay. 1983, I think that was. Which was in the state that later would. Yeah, it was when the the Rue uh, uh, family owned uh, Palier. It still had a good reputation back then. What was it like drinking the Bocastel? Uh the 81 Bocastel was a revelation. That was like an amazing bottle of wine, you know. Just it had it all. It was velvety, it was just amazing. From then I was hooked. That that was that was the wine. And, and
0: what we might say a little bit rustic you were down with that. Like at that at yeah. The, yeah, at and, that stage, yeah. And probably still are, right? Like in, in yeah. to some level. Yeah. So you end up hearing about Lapierre, and how did that all go down?
1: Um, well, I I moved to the West Coast. I started working for Kermit. And, oh, okay. Uh, Kermit Lynch in Berkeley. Kermit Lynch in Berkeley. Um, and uh, uh, took a trip to France to do the, a bit of the wine tour and, and stopped at my uh, family's house, uh, just outside of Paris. My uncle had some wine, and we were sitting down to dinner. It was like a July night, July evening. It was hot. And he actually brought out a bottle of View Telegraph. He, had, he liked that wine. And since they had that summer place in Avignon, they they, they knew the domain. And it was uh, we were having something like merguez and couscous and vegetables and something like that. And it didn't seem like that was the right wine for it. So he went and grabbed this uh, this Morgon with the wax capsule, a white label, you know, the, the La Pierre Morgon. It was an 88 vintage. And it was nice and cool from the cellar, and it was just an amazing wine. You know, I thought, wow.
0: And at the time, there really wasn't a lot of Crue Beaujolais of any kind in the States.
1: Yeah, at Kermit's shop, there was, uh, you know, he had a few, a few good ones, D'Achon, uh, Chignard, and, uh, and you know, after trying this wine, I thought, you know, he's going to like this. And uh, I asked my uncle if he would sell me a bottle, and I was heading down to uh, Bandol had lunch with Kermit, gave him the bottle, and said, you know. And then it was a few months later that he called and said, you know, he went and visited LaPierre, you know, found out about the no sulfur cuvées, the Jules Chauvet. Because Chauvet was still alive at that time. Jules Chauvet, yeah, I guess he was alive at that time. Not sure. And uh,
0: so that set off a whole chain of events, which is now known as the the Gang of Four, with Foyard and LaPierre being imported by Kermit.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And is there a statue
1: of you somewhere in Morgon for this this uh, <laughs> this connection that you made? No, but I have a, a little picture of a statue in, uh, in 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 one of the frame in my house that and it's the Morgon statue. So it's pretty dear to me the, those wines and that that relationship.
0: So what was it like working at the Kermit Lynch store back in the day?
1: Back in the day, it was exciting. I mean, you know, we were in the middle of the wine country you know and this was a period where merlot was the big wine and and there were no california wines in the shop and hardly a merlot and people would come in and ask for that kind of thing and and we would you know try to turn, turn them onto something else how often was that successful and not successful i mean what was oh the... it was pretty successful pretty sure you know how it to... is with retail people come in and you know either they're really going to walk away but there was really nowhere close by to walk away to so. right I think they, many of them knew kind of what they were getting into. And, and one of the great things about that shop was that um, whenever a container came in, whenever those new wines, everything was opened, you know, we tried everything. And and so that was, you know, we were a knowledgeable staff, you know, we tried, Cochairie bottles came in, we tried those. And
0: how did you end up working there? You came from Zackey's and you showed up in Berkeley and what happened? I had next? this
1: plan to move to Berkeley. I had a friend who lived there and he said I could stay there. So um I had uh purchased a copy of Kermit's book, Adventures on the Wine Route. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I wasn't familiar with it, but I, I read it on the plane. To Berkeley. Uh, to Berkeley and read the whole thing. It was a real page turner. It was it was I think I had initially gotten a grasp of what great one was but it wasn't really focused and this book really sort of made me feel like this is this is the way to look at wine i felt the same way it Mm -hmm. had a big impact on me and i read it like a couple times like oh yeah yeah there's certain parts that you want to read again and so
0: you get to the the you get to berkeley and how long does it take you to show up at kermit's store
1: I think it took uh, a few hours before I walked down the street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was really close by. You know, I was on uh, staying on Cedar Street, and I think it's on Cedar and San Pablo. So it was pretty quick before I, I walked in there and looked around. And what was the process
0: towards like getting employed there at that time?
1: Well, at the time Kermit spent a full six months in France, and and it was winter, and he was in he was uh, in France at the time. Was that right? right. Yeah, I think so. Well, anyway, he was in France and he wasn't there, and so I, I started buying a few of the wines and uh, getting familiar with them. And
0: as a customer, you come yeah, in and buy this and yeah. say, "Hey, guys!" And, exactly. And exactly. Then they were like, "Come on to our side, bro." Or <laughs> what, what happened?
1: Well, I, I I was living in San Francisco, and my girlfriend had moved out to the West Coast, and we decided to to, to make the trip across the bridge and and go shop there. And and that day, Kermit was there, and my uh, we decided my my girlfriend approached him and said, "Hi, you know." My boyfriend's a big fan, you know. I
0: like that approach. Yeah.
1: Send a pretty <laughs> girl in. It helped. <laughs> <laughs> to mediate. <laughs> you could see Kermit got excited right away, so. <laughs> well, it was nice. He asked, you know, I, I told him that I would be interested in working in the shop, and he he had me come in the next day. And,
0: and it seems like a pretty straightforward operation when you go in today. Like, there's cases of wine on the floor, and it's there's not a lot of shelving, and it's like, yeah. things are kind of laid out. I mean, what yeah. was it like back then?
1: Exactly the same. Exactly, exactly the same. same. had not changed at all. And I mean, s- I went back uh, uh, a few years ago, and and uh, looks exactly the same. And
0: so you're you're hanging out at Cafe Franny, and
1: yeah, yeah, the good discount on the. I think we got free cappuccino, and and we got a loaf of bread at Acme, which was next door, and so we were well stocked, and and they got the discount on the wine, and and so it was a it was a good it was a good thing. And
0: did you do the Shape Panisse experience or
1: Yeah, I did the Shape Panisse East thing. That was that was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I remember going there by myself. I guess uh I didn't have anybody to go there with and so I think I went there at 4:30 in the afternoon upstairs at the cafe. I was pretty much alone and had uh, a really nice pleasant lunch uh, with some wine and you know, got a little got a little giddy and uh and in a good way, you know. It was really just an amazing meal and amazing uh, wine. How long
0: were you at Kermit's uh, shop for in terms of working?
1: Um, I think it was two years, two, yeah. three years, something like that.
0: And what was the next thing after that? What,
1: what? I went to Europe and uh, was trying to see if I, you know, couldn't live over in Europe for a bit and ended up going to Prague. Oh, okay. That was sort of the time when just after, uh, just after uh, the wall came The down wall and,
0: came down and yeah. you heard about the weed and...
1: But. <laughs> and there was a lot of americans there there was a, actually there was a friend of mine who lived there and he told me to come on over
0: and that was like the mid 90s or early 90s
1: early 90s yeah yeah
0: because i remember that period of time of being in college around that time and people yeah. were like yeah prague man let's go yeah you know what i mean yeah. i never went it to, was cheap wasn't it was cool cheap and uh, and it was a good time yeah. yeah and how did you swing back into the wine thing what happened
1: well, I decided to move back, and so got another job, uh, another uh, retailer who did wholesale in California, called the Wine House, and, oh, and okay. uh, you know they were they had good selection of wine. They were repping Bobby Catcher wines at the time, so
0: sure, and that was kind of a yeah. go era for a Catcher, like people were into the wines at that. Yeah, though.
1: there was uh, there was a lot of good shops in, in San Francisco. There was Pacific Wine Company. They were sort of German specialists, and would hang out with those guys, and you know formed. Um, a wine tasting group with some of the guys from Kermit Lynch. And so we kept in touch with those wines and continue to buy those.
0: And so at some point you end up in New York on the wholesale side. How did that all come about?
1: Um, I guess it was another, another um, trip to Prague and a longer stay there. And instead of coming back to San Francisco, decided to move back uh, to New York and, um, It was my idea, sort of. Uh, I did a harvest at LaPierre when I was in Prague, you know. And and he sort of asked me what I was going to do. And I I said I would probably work in wholesale in New York. I didn't know how I knew that, but it sounded a little intimidating, you know. But that's what I ended up uh, doing. What was he like in person, Marcel LaPierre? Marcel was a great guy. I mean, everybody loved Marcel, you know. I mean, he was a real bon vivant, yet he really... He took people under his wing he wanted to teach people he had this one side that was really you know a professor and and serious uh, when it came to the wine and then sort of a big party was always happening it was it was just a, a place where people would just drop in and start drinking and be welcome and it was quite quite something what was the harvest like Harvest was uh, an intense party. It was really, you know, a lot of work, but a lot of partying, and everybody lived right there. It was like a student dorm upstairs, and downstairs there were dinners and lunch for 35 people. But usually by the end of the evening, there was, you know, close to 45 people. And uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a great party.
0: Well, I mean, how did it go just in terms of the wine side with the Harvest? I mean...
1: Uh... Well... I arrived in uh, Morgon. He's near the town of Ville Morgon, and pretty much when when we start harvesting, when we start harvesting there, or when he started harvesting, uh, everybody else had finished. You know. Okay, so, so he was picking. The town later. was lively, and then two days later, it was empty. And not only was he picking late, but he was picking. He was doing two passes through the vineyards. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is was pretty much unheard of in Beaujolais. I mean, if, yes. that's if the weather was good. If it was rainy. I think it would all get harvested, but they would check the uh, weather. And so we did a first round where you take half the grapes off and then, and then there was a, a break and then come back and then the grapes were really ripe, what was left and harvest that.
0: And did you see some of the differences in on the vinification side between the different bottlings and things?
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, I stuck around for a lot of that and there was, you know, there was the the nouveau was being made at the same time as, um, but at the time I remember only one, uh, essentially one bottling of uh, Morgon. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know the idea was you you'd harvest the grapes and they'd be in these uh, bins, bins, and they'd get put in a refrigerated truck that was hanging out behind the domain. So the grapes pretty much came out of the truck frosty in the morning. And that's how the vinification would start, very slow, very cold. And
0: what did you see in terms of the non-sulfur at that time? I mean, it was still kind of early days uh, for American appreciation of that kind of wine. I mean, did it sink in with you right away
1: or? Well, before I did the harvest, when I was working at Kermit, I visited the next year, yeah. Pierre, And we did a tasting and down in the cellar. And, and his favorite thing to do was to, at the end of the tasting is to have three bottles and one was the uh, sulfured and filtered. And then there was the lightly sulfured and non-filtered. And then there was the unsulfured and unfiltered, you know, the natural one. I thought
0: he was going to double it up. Like one would be offered to you twice to see if you could see the difference. <laughs> <in that. laughs>
1: well, the difference was subtle between the first two, but it was clearly the best one was the last one. Well, the, the zero sulfur was clearly the best one. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the impression... When you do a test like that, you know, you want to drink that one, yeah, you know, the one that's completely. And then we drank all the bottles that he kept around were the oh, he always drank the unsulfured stuff and and uh, bottles were just great. They aged well. Uh, it was just a pleasure to drink those wines.
0: What did he say about it to you? I mean, when he would talk about it, well, how did he approach this? Uh, he was
1: pretty. he was pretty, you know, he was pretty careful about the vinification, you know. I mean you try to go towards that and then hopefully you can do it. Are you there know? some years not...
0: where it was more difficult because of Oh absolutely they,
1: they would do I mean it wasn't left to chance. I mean those guys would look at things through a microscope that a microbiologist with a microscope and every few days they would have slides and and look at the yeasts and see what was happening and if they need to intervene in some way or do something uh not too radical but and, um, you know, and then there could be the bottling that would be lightly sulfured, and then there was the unsulfured. And did he ever talk about Chauvet? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he even gave me the book that uh, Jacques Néoport wrote. That yes, was, He good, said good. It's, it's a good book. It was in French. It was very technical. But it talked about, you know, all those things. Um, I think, uh, we met over once he came and, and LaPierre said, you know, he started doing it before I did and he knows a lot and that kind of thing. So, um,
0: <clears throat> so you make it back to New York and you're doing the wholesale thing, but how did that come about?
1: Well, I had to figure out where to work. So I wanted to work at the, the distributor that had the Kermit Lynch wines. Yeah. And that was Winebow at the time. Sure. Still is. And, uh.
0: Did you see a difference between what was offered in the west coast and what was offered in the east coast or the reception?
1: Well, I think it first started that I I didn't get the job right away at Winebow. I, I had to apply a f- couple of places, but essentially I wanted the job at Winebow. So they gave me the uh, a, a territory that was up in Westchester. Oh,
0: okay. Well, you're from that area. Yeah,
1: from that area and and it was pretty much um you know, go out there and open new accounts kind of territory. Got so it. not exactly it Kermit Lynch. The uh, bread butter. Uh, Kermit Lynch. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, you'd have C- to, you have to. You went with the... Stag Sleep and Duckhorn. Yeah, and the Bogle yeah. and the... Right, 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 at right. At the right, time, right. it was Domain St. George was my big... Uh, Got it. That was uh, the least expensive
0: wine in the book. People were like, where's that unsulfured
1: cuvée? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it <that> wasn't happening. <laughs> no, it was happening. I, I did manage to to sell some up there and I managed to open quite a few accounts. And a year later, they, they invited me to do... do to uh, sell wine in Manhattan for restaurants.
0: And yeah, because I remember going to like Moss back in the day, Moss Farmhouse, yeah. and looking at that list and being like, wow, unbelievable selections on the Kermit Lynch thing. And then I was like, oh, who's the wine buyer here? And then I gradually put it together that in a way you had a big influence on on that buying because you were his rep and you right. we were kind of helping him along. I think. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, I was like, wow, this is a great, great selection like somebody knows what's up you know what i mean yeah um i mean so were people starting to get into lynch because i feel like the reception for lynch on the east coast was always a little more lagging than it was on the west coast because he wasn't here much and you know for several reasons
1: yeah i um basically that was a concern when they asked me to come to new york to do the manhattan restaurant selling thing was the big question was uh what can we do you know, sell more Kermit Lynch wine. What are you going to say when people don't want to buy it? Or like, you know?
0: <laughs> that's the, re- you know, that's that the was, interview that was question. Interview, yeah. When you get shut down, no. how are you going to respond? Yeah, and, exactly. Oh, I'm
1: going to TP that restaurant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and, and What did you find worked? I mean, you know.
1: Well, you know, Winebow had all these California, blue chip California things that everybody had to have yeah. at the time. At you know? the time. I mean, Sonoma Couture. Yeah, that was was uh, a big thing reserved for on premise only, pretty much. I mean, just tiny bits trickled to retail. So it was an amazing door opener. And there's all these accounts that want to buy these things from you and you could go down the list. And so that was money. And then there was this other, stuff. There was this other <laughs> stuff that was fun to sell. Right, 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 right. Uh, and you were working
0: with Wheeler back then? Was he part of the crew? No, or? he was at Skernick. He'd left already. Yeah. He, he did like a decade there so i wasn't sure if yeah it, it over overlapped or not
1: no it's uh i i had heard of the, you know michael wheeler um that he had worked there that he was an important salesman tina fisher was uh was selling wine retail and she wasn't there anymore and and and
0: then you ended up working for polliner with wheeler like yeah. In, years
1: later. And the
0: later. job interview was like a couple bottles of wine.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had to pass the test, you it, know.
0: It's it's like drinking with the, uh, you know, Russians or something like that. <laughs> well, if you can hold your vodka.
1: Yeah, I got to see the email he wrote. You know, you know, he, he said uh, I vote to hire, but uh, he, you know, maybe he needs to take off those uh, blinders a bit from winebow and uh, be a bit more global. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah I so. shouldn't have read that email. It wasn't yeah, meant that, to be coming to me. And hey, yeah. but it really did uh, it did make me realize that uh, you know, in this business, you, when you're sale- when you're a salesperson, you can be kind of locked into what you do, and and then there's sort of this bigger wine world. Uh,
0: that's why I never wanted to do it, because yeah. from the buyer perspective, you can see the whole thing, but from Absolutely. the seller perspective. Yeah, I'm, I,
1: I, I'm not going to go there, but it would be really interesting to 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 have that opportunity, to have well, all the reps come to you and taste amazing things with you.
0: Well, I mean, to the extent that they do. I mean, there's headaches, too, but you know what I mean? Like, yes. But you, one of the things that's great is you can see the whole what's available, yeah. as opposed to, yeah. you know, because yeah. I often saw that the reps for a certain thing didn't see the whole thing. You know right, what I mean? Right. And then they would be like, this is a really great X. Yeah. And you would taste it and be like, well, I I, I personally feel like this isn't a pretty good X. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. And then they'd be like, well, what do you mean? And I'd be like, well, I mean, I think this other X is really good. You know what I mean? And, and one time I remember, and this is totally futile, so I would never do it again or recommend that anyone do this. In fact, I would strongly recommend that you not do this, but I was like, I'll show you. And I went and I got, a bottle of, of <laughs> Syrah that, you know, somebody had p- tasted me on a Syrah and I was like, this is not that great. You're saying it's wonderful. And they're like, well, what's better than this? Right. You know? And I was like, well, this, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I opened it up and poured it for them and they were very frustrated, right. like, and not appreciative right. of the wine or me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, pretty angry.
1: I think I did that once in a while, you know, yeah but from my end, you know, I'd be like, well, what are you pouring <laughs> <laughs> right right right
0: right well, that you won't take this yeah. yeah yeah exactly what was the move like at polner at that time it seemed like a great book i mean
1: it was it was the it company and and um the reason it came to me is because one of their top sales guys decided to go into the management side of uh, of uh, of the book and so it opened up a territory that was interesting enough to
0: Okay, I think I remember exactly when that happened yeah, too.
1: Exactly, and uh, but I, I felt that at Winebow they had a good book. They had Kermit Lynch. I was attached to that, but I also felt that Polaner maybe had a geekier book that it was more wine focused, and it was, you know, from the owner being right there to people like Michael Wheeler and the, and the other salespeople at the time.
0: And so uh, eventually, though, you swung back on the on the Kermit
1: thing well yeah two two years later i mean i I Palliner had great wines, but we were starting to sell more you know wines that you actually make money with you know and and so the opportunity to Which sell Kermit is, Lynch only was uh
0: that seems like a recurring theme though so the, the the wines that make money versus the wines that you're really into i mean yeah has that been when you're a commissioned
1: much- sales rep I mean yeah, everybody likes to get orders and reorders and yeah. Be able to pay for things in yeah, a you know, capitalist world and So stuff. one day, uh, you know, the wines you have to sell, the next day the wines you want to sell, maybe you can work it out that way sometime.
0: But, I mean, ha- has it shocked you or surprised you how much the wines that you wanted to sell became the wines that you could sell, like, easily? Because yeah. It seems I like mean, now.
1: People, well, now people really know wine. Yeah. I mean.
0: You think that's the difference to customer education?
1: Customer, I, I, I always thought the customers could get it if you show it to them. And now more than ever, of course, there's so many sources, so many people selling wine, so many small companies. And and I think that you find that salespeople go from these bigger companies and start their own company, and they're really good salespeople. So they've got good stuff, but they know how to sell it too. And it's and oh, I, I, it. I think a buyer now has so many good salespeople and good wines to choose from now that you don't need to have a brand or a big recognized name. And
0: have ha, did that take you by surprise at all? The decline of brands, or
1: yeah, it, I think it happened slowly, but it, for sure. I mean, you know, there was a time when you tried to sell champagne, and everybody told you they had to have a vefliqueo, and pretty much just that was. And then you started seeing that eroding, and and now you don't see vefliqueo.
0: What do you think the causes of that erosion were? I mean, why have people gone anti-brand? In your mind. Like having witnessed it on the sales side in the street.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know. Well, I, you wrote an article about that. Uh, you know, the death of the California cult wine. And, I'm just having you. Want,
0: I, that's what I was. No, but you into I, I read that, me. and and and, <laughs>
1: and uh, I, I agree with a lot of what you, you said about that. It's uh, you know, the wines weren't as exclusively available only on premise. You know, the people didn't want to spend as much money, and and list got smaller, and and. um And just, uh, you know, back then we used to fight sort of the battle, you know, the new oak versus, you know, not new oak. And and now it just seems like so many wines are not oaky monsters and you're competing against something else, something better. You don't need to talk about those things as much.
0: I'm always shocked by how the big fights of yesteryear seem so trivial now
1: exactly you know what i mean exactly yeah
0: you're like yeah. wow people used to get all worked up about that yeah. thing and yeah. you're like really people used to get worked up about that <laughs> and now you see you like you know 23 year olds coming in and
1: well you know, you
0: know I, I like voicing the losing side from years ago but it turns out to have one you know what i mean
1: well i i have a you know two kids so i go out sometimes to suburban restaurants that where I won't be embarrassed. And I look at the wine list, uh, not that I'm going to order anything, but uh just look at it. And I'm, uh, I see these brands and I'm like, Oh, that that's where, that's where it is. That's know? where it goes now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and probably through broad swaths of America that aren't, I, mean, I
1: think so. Yeah. And
0: do you think that that's going to change? I mean, cause sometimes I'm like, well, I wonder if they'll remarket, but then I think that the, maybe the pool of buyers in middle America is so big that they're like, no, we found our niche. I think
1: I think they found their niche, yeah. I think, you know, it's not the market share. They, and I think that's why some of these brands are going to companies like Southern, you know, because they have the in to these huge corporate restaurants and chains. And
0: Sometimes I think that really history of wine is, it's really just the history of distribution. Like in the same way that the history of trade is about where rivers are, like the history of wine is about how you... Traverse the distribution of it. You yeah. know what I mean? And and the fact that like the internet and uh, global calling and constant updates about the world are so much easier now. You can communicate yeah. that that has changed the model for what's possible on a small scale. But it's also changed uh, like the whole setup for brands and also how they're criticized. Like certain people were basically critics of which brand was better. And that brand of criticism has has lessened as brands have lessened. So sometimes I think it's really just that it's like a history of trade more than a history of wine itself. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean I, I don't know. Um, so you you then did end up working for Carmen again on the East Coast. And you you who do you run into somebody or how did that all reunite?
1: Um, well, I had to work with with uh, Joe Dresner. Oh, okay. Surprisingly enough, that day, and because um, you were with Pollinger, and he was with Pollinger, he was with Pollinger, and I had worked with
0: him. And how did, how did those go? You have to have some good stories.
1: About oh, it. I know. Everybody warned me about it. Yeah. Oh, so, so you know. unfortunately, I don't have a great story about it because <laughs> mine went pretty well.
0: You were ready for
1: it. you were like, <laughs> no, it went without incident. You know, it was ready, pretty... right, right. <laughs> I heard this. I heard some stories, but um, Joe was a great guy, and I think he appreciated. You know. What bummed him out was when he saw something he didn't like. Right. right. Not guys who are really into going early in the day. Yeah. That didn't bum him out. No.
0: Yeah. It was <laughs> guys who are you just didn't mention the boggle sales. Is that what <laughs> you're like, well I'm gonna sweep that under the rug conveniently. Yeah. No, I'm just I'm yeah.
1: Kidding. No, there's a few people that at the company that were great salespeople of Dresner, you know. And so I kinda came in there as, you know, I wanna help. And uh and he was a great guy, you know.
0: Seemed like he always had a big appreciation for the gang before. Actually, like I always he got did. the sense that like yeah. if he could have imported them, he, he would did. have. Loved he
1: imported to. Foyard for a little tiny. Bit. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: boy, the he, hidden he history a, of New York.
1: Yeah, he had a, a a problem with one of the vintages. I think it was ninety one or something. Wow, ninety one that far
0: back. Wow, I think. I'm Maybe. not sure. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't come into Foyard till like
1: two thousand ish. No, vintage, he had it you know? for a vintage or two. He told me. Huh. So, so, our work with ended up getting canceled. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And I ended up going on my own, and, and I ran into Bruce Nyers, who is the national salesman for Kermit Lynch, who I knew well. Like at a restaurant having lunch or something? It was at Ledoux's. Oh,
0: okay. yeah, Because he was finishing one call and you were starting another, that
1: kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, exactly. I came in. So, we exchanged cards, and he kind of looked at me with a, there was a look in his eye that sort of, I don't know. Made me have a pause for a moment. I thought towards the end of that year, I, I, you know, shortly after we had this encounter, I sent him an email asking if he had ever envisioned, you know, having somebody, you know, local, rep the Kermit Lynch book. And Which they this really was, needed, uh, I think, two thousand eight, the end of two thousand eight, when there was a recession. Recession. And I thought, this is they probably need help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, now they have several people repping it locally. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, yeah that that was the plan at the time it was being executed and so um yeah he they hired two people for new york and you know and and for part of the east coast and one of those was phil Soray. yeah (laughs) so you know i it was like coming back to Winebow. people at Winebow were like oh you you got your dream job you know and and right 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 stuff but uh coming back it wasn't just Winebow who was distributing the wines it was ipo because some of the selection the, the of the new kids in the, to IPO. Yeah.
0: Especially the Italian
1: stuff. IPO started with the Italian stuff. The Italian stuff was with Bowler, and uh, uh, it was going okay, but, you know, IPO made a bold move towards those. I remember
0: someone from IPO coming and telling me that they were going to import Kermit Lynch's Italian stuff, and I called her a liar. Because I was like, there's no way that Kermit imports it to Italy. I was like, I've never heard of Kermit Lich Italians. You're totally lying. (laughs) And then uh, I thought, you know, like joking, you know what I mean? Because I'd never heard of them. I'd never heard of that. And I felt like I was at a lecture one time where he said he didn't get involved with Italy because he wasn't into it and didn't speak the language or something like that. And so I thought that was like going forward, not looking back. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And uh, it turned out he had a bunch of Italian selections and I was completely wrong about that.
1: Yeah, I guess that that was a with. IPO on board, selling Italian wine in New York. That was sort of a growth and place to grow. Was it happening? Company. Like, have people responded to those selections in your experience? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Do you feel like again it was more value focused?
1: Well, when when I started working at the shop, you know, twenty years ago, they, he he had in, he was importing at the time Aldo Conterno. I didn't know that. Vietti. You know, there were some some big names, but he ended up. One way or the other, he was considered a French wine importer, and the Italy sort of dropped. I had no idea he used
0: to bring yeah. in. Huh. Because, yeah, I mean, now I think of it as kind of like with Guido Porro and stuff, I think of it as more like excessively uh, priced.
1: you know? Right, right. But he just picked up Kinterelli. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, well, of course. So, yeah. Which is cool. And, and that other property. Which you're saying is not
0: <laughs> excessively well, priced. Not <laughs> excessively
1: priced. And not excessively. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm kidding. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he's picked up a few things from Chatterton recently. So
0: yeah, and and so then you uh, you did that for a while, and then the Jeanne Francois
1: thing materialized. Yeah, what yeah. happened there? Um, well, I was going to start with another company. Okay, and I had taken a sabbatical, uh, gone to Europe. My wife's check from Prague and. We had two very small kids.
0: Oh, and, your wife's from Prague. Now yeah. it all comes together. Uh, yeah. yeah. So less weed, more <laughs> <laughs> familial ties. Okay, I got you.
1: Um. So I, I took a break, and uh, we started the year 2012. Uh, was it 2000? Yeah. Going to Prague for a while, and um, and coming back, the company with this company that I talked to was waiting and gonna, and then Jenny out of the blue, sort of sent me a Facebook message uh, asking if I'd be interested in a, in a huge position. That's how she put it, and I—it I, sounded interesting. And she seems her.
0: Uh, like really great. I mean, She's as far great. as I can yeah. tell, yeah. I mean, super nice and yeah, intelligent, exactly. and cares about what she does, and yeah, was willing to stick with it. I mean, it's been several years of
1: yeah. You know, I mean, the book is great. And I didn't know the book as well as I do now, of course, and so I was taking a bit of a chance, but I kind of felt that. It would be interesting. I would have fun on the wine side, and it's been completely that way. Mm, what What are the wines
0: that really call your name in the book these days? Is it more of the French stuff, or some of the budding Italian
1: stuff? Or um, really like the Italian stuff? That uh, That's been a pleasant surprise, and a few really solid properties that I like a lot. So that was a good direction to go. I think you know, ramping it up, but with good stuff.
0: And do you feel like the like the market has changed enough that there can be several distributors of natural wine in New York and that all works out even though you don't have those kind of like door openers that you used to have for the branded retail segment
1: yeah i think you know we we were, we just hired another reps and now we're four reps but um, <clears throat> if you have the good accounts then you can you can have a several
0: do you natural feel wine companies like the buyers are um, more doing mixed things, like I'm going to have more like conventional next to natural and people can pick what they want? Or do you feel like it's more, it tends to go more towards like people are like, I'm doing natural 100% on the list. I mean, which which way does it actually work out on the street?
1: Well, you know, you have to sell to a lot of customers. I mean, I think that's the key when you have a small book. So if you're just interested in the people who are the true believers and, and want their list to be like that, then that's limited. Got it. You know, there are some of those, but Uh, There's a lot of people where they, I I have had encounters with buyers who like a wine, but question whether their buyers, their customers will like it. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? I started to try to encourage them to go with their, their feeling. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that if they like it, they can convey it. um, And, and, you know, and one of them is our domestic producer, like Monte Bruno, who makes a Pinot Noir. But it tastes rather natural for for Oregon, for domestic. And they're afraid that they like it a lot, but that people expect something else from Pinot Noir from the States. And my my feeling is, you know, this is a great movement that's happening domestically. We need to encourage it, you know. I mean, the natural wine movement is is happening on the West Coast, and that's a great thing, you know. So, I mean, in a way, it feels like
0: a lot of your career has tracked the... Uh, we weren't expecting this non-sulfur thing. Like, you know what I mean, in terms of people tasting a wine and not expecting those flavors because of the early association with Lapierre and then following through. I mean, um, how much do you think that it's real that people's expectations can prevent them from opening into new vistas? Or how much do you think that that is quickly overcome? Or what is the reality? I mean, where's the line between
1: subjective understanding and putting up barriers? Well, I think we have producers who make wine that's natural but in flavor profile, pretty much anyone can understand it and like it. it might be a Bourgogne producer or something. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty classic, just excellent Cabernet Franc. And then there's the the guys who make the more you know this is obviously natural wine it's obviously different and that's where i think you're going to find maybe that the list has some of that but it needs to have you know it's it's somewhere where the buyer the the cu- will take the customer there if they feel they're ready to go there and do you think it's harder for
0: someone to have a a wine that tastes naturally in a known appellation than it is for an unknown appellation. Like if people come in and say like I know Oregon Pinot you know, Noir right. and it tastes totally different, is that harder for them than if it were like Istria? It's you know harder. What I mean? It's
1: harder because it just depends how how you can deal with the occasional return, or it's it's hard to explain to a customer that they're not right. You know, right. I think the, right. the what you have to do is just whisk the wine away and give them what they're looking for if they seem unhappy.
0: Have you ever had it taken to like a personal level where people are like, You are a bad person for trying to sell this wine to me? Like you know um, what I mean?
1: No, I've I've had it with a friend or two, you know, that really just don't like the company or it's 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 rare, but you know, it's it's a bit of uh you know, no, those aren't good wines and uh not meaning ours specifically, but that that type of wine. That type of wine. Yeah, it's kind of hard when they're your friend to, you know, but they're into wine. I thought I was sorry. <laughs> so what's next for Phil? Try Soraya? not to have too many fights.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, you're good at that. <laughs> but what's what's coming up on the horizon for you? I mean, what are you thinking about in the future?
1: You taking another no, trip to Prague? Is, or? this is the future. Oh,
0: this is the move. Yeah. Yeah. And I do you see it as a growing category? Like, uh, you know, natural wine in no. a book that's kind of like set up as a natural wine? Do you see it as like something that can
1: expand in the next few years? I think that you know you can sell it, and but you can't be growing it uh, exponentially. I mean, got it. Just the fact that look at a vintage like two thousand twelve. Uh, there's very little quantity in the north, so there's less wine, and 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 this is the kind of story that you have when you have farmers who are working this way, you got to take your hits once in a while and say, you know, we're selling good wine and and there's less of it this year. And it's not a model for, you know, bring it on, we've got more. And so you can work with more producers and that's a way to grow. But then there's always the question of, you know, how many and how many people can you employ to, to, to do this kind of job? Because you can't sell it everywhere and and in certain places where it doesn't belong so much, you can sell it because buyers are are good, but it's it slows sell through you know so
0: the first case, sure, but the second third case may be a little slower to reorder, yes, yeah, if you're
1: out in the suburbs you know high spotting certain accounts and you feel good about the buyer and you've got a relationship, but then you see that the they're not selling it as quickly as they should and 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 then so the way to grow it would be. To have more or less expensive wines, more, but that's maybe not the model of the of the company completely.
0: And do you see people having more or less success with it at the restaurant level, uh, following certain trends? Like, for example, do people who have more success with it tend to decant natural wines more, or do they tend to keep them colder in the cellar, or do they tend to present them a certain way
1: and be more successful as a result? From your viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why I'm not that into decanting myself, but I think it's because wines that are kind of fragile. I've never liked decanting Beaujolais or Burgundy. I know people like to decant Girard because it's, there's a little bit of reductiveness to the Pulsard and other grapes, but I don't like it that much. I, but serving it chilled, keeping it properly, thats that's essential. I mean, I've seen a few restaurants where I know the wine really well, and we'll go in there and we'll order it and it's not quite what it was. And I pretty much know that it's, it's the storage, you know? So do you think that sometimes when people are like, natural wine is a bad thing, what
0: they're really saying is poor storage is a bad thing? Well, I
1: think that's the problem. It's uh, everybody always blames the wine, you know, because it's in front of you because you're drinking it, you're smelling it and you're saying the problem's the wine. But um, sometimes the problem is the storage.
0: And I guess Kermit was kind of early on that with yeah. refrigerated containers. Yeah. So but have... he
1: also, I think Kermit also realized that his wine was being distributed to places where it was no longer in his control, you know. And therefore, a he tiny could... bit of sulfur at the bottle is the the safer way to go.
0: Because although he did bring in some non-sulfur cuvées, mostly he didn't for a number of years. Like, mostly he asked for a little, little sulfur, even yeah. from people who were yeah. doing that.
1: sulfur he he got burned you know a few times and and i think for him it was uh for some people it's it's worth taking the risk and for him it was a little bit it's bad for the brand it's bad for the for the for the estate have you know. seen
0: refrigeration get better as an issue uh, in the supply chain as yeah. in, over the yeah. course of your people
1: career? are really um you see more wine fridges in people's homes too you know and even their small new york city apartments and it's essential, you know, and, and the retail stores too. They're not cooking wine, you know. I mean, I used to love that store, Crossroads. Yeah, Willie Abramsky was a great guy, and I loved selling him wine, but I, I feared for it.
0: Feared for the wine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, it's like sending your kids off to the <laughs> yeah. orphanage. You know yeah. what I mean? It's still there. You're gonna have a tough life. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think that's essentially just an awareness issue, like
1: about it needs to be? Yeah. I just like when you see, for me, when you see red wine standing on the counter and that's going to be the by the glass and it has to be at room temperature, I w- I'm just like, how can you chill it down a, a bit? You know, it's a glass bore but it's too warm and you wish it were a little cooler. That
0: feels like that would probably be almost a constant frustration with you with dining out. Like I feel like, because a, le- a lot of restaurants would let you down on that. Do you, yeah, feel, do you feel yeah. constantly like... I need come, to be close to the ice bucket. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I want a table close to the ice bucket or near the oyster. <laughs> yeah, a little bit shopping. of ice,
1: lots of cold water.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's how I met Bruce Snyers, actually. He was the first one I'd ever seen who requested an ice bucket for his red burgundy.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he pretty much wanted everything a little cooler than it was. This was like, you
0: know, 15, well, 12 years ago or something like yeah, that. And, yeah. You know, it wasn't a common request. You know what I mean? I know, I know. I mean, I, it was, uh, we had a cellar for reds and stuff, but it wasn't common. So you
1: felt it came out at the right temperature and he wanted
0: well, to get a little colder. I, I didn't, I was actually super impressed that someone seemed to care more about it. But right. it, let me put it this way. It came out at a temperature where no one else had ever said, I want a nice bucket. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the history of the thing. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> and that's how we met. You know exactly, what I mean? And right. now, you know, now we're friends.
1: And- what restaurant was that
0: uh it was called blue in boston and the funny story about that is that during that meal um well actually i was uh, the real story is that i was too shy to be like who are you but i i noticed that there was this guy doing this and he was by himself and he'd ordered a whole bottle of simone b's 70 Bone, i think uh and i was like okay that's pretty cool because right. you know it's not an everyday thing back then <laughs> you know And uh, just by himself, and he's having a salad, and the fire alarm goes off. It was a new building. It was in a huge complex, and it had a movie theater. So thousands of people will get evacuated in a hotel. Thousands of people will get evacuated when this happened. Unfortunately, it happened like five times when I was there. Um, Fire alarm goes off. There's no fire or anything, but you obviously don't know this until you leave and the fire department comes. So we evacuate everybody, and the owners like dropped the checks on all the tables and I'm like, you want me to drop the checks on the tables they're still eating? And he's like, yeah, just drop the check. And I was like, okay, well I work for you. So I'm going to, what you say although that seems a little silly to me you know what i mean so i dropped the check on this guy and he's like you owe me a steak and a half bottle of wine (laughs) you know because he's he was eating his appetizer or whatever and he had to leave and he wasn't so happy about it you know and on the best of days he's not like a mr cheery singing soprano you know what i mean (laughs) like he's a wonderful guy but you know he's a little uh gruff sometimes you know uh, that's part of the charm you know Mm -hmm. and uh so i was like you know i'm really sorry and then uh I uh, go to the wine tasting that I'm at the next day, uh, which, is, you know, I think it was Rhone or something, but it was a bunch of different distributors. But I get over to the the table and there's this guy right. that, the behind the table and he's like, I remember you, you owe me a steak and a bottle of wine. And I was like, oh, damn. And so I was like, I know, I'm really sorry if we can ever make it up to you. You know, you can come back in tonight or whatever, bottle of wine I mean. And, uh, he's like, oh, I'm only in town till this afternoon. And, and, uh, so then later we became good friends, but this joke has been running for like 12 years where he tells me I owe him a half a bottle of wine and a steak. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. But that, that was actually what happened in reality. Um. But yeah, I actually just saw him recently. Uh, met his daughter, and uh, you know we've we've become good friends. But wasn't the most auspicious of starts. And uh, right. and but I realized that he had to know something right away because he was the only one who ever did ask for that. I mean, uh, especially at that level, like you know. It wasn't the lightest wine, even though it was a right. the Savoy Le Bon, you know, and yeah. he still wanted it colder. So, yeah. which I, I totally get now at the time I was a little befuddled, but right. you know, I, it's not like I went up to him and was like, what are you doing? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But sir, I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. That was great. Phil Saray of Jenny and Francois Selections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.